in today's scripture from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for that, Sandy. Okay. Um, as, uh, as I was preparing uh, for this service this week, um, I was reminded of a time uh, probably eight or nine years ago um, when my son was very young um, and we were shopping and we were in a grocery store picking up some things. Um, and he was sitting in the cart in front of me as I was going up and down the aisles. And, uh, and he was just singing to himself as we went. And I wasn't paying any attention. I was focused on know, what kind of spaghetti sauce to get or something. And, uh, but then I, I suddenly clued into what he was singing. He was, he was singing, uh, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Um, and it was just something that he had absorbed. He was re- really young at that time. And he was just singing it away without sort of any understanding of what that imagery really meant. Um, and as I clued into what it was he was singing, my, my gut reaction was to kind of cringe a little bit and kind of look around to see who had heard this. Um, and I became painfully aware in that moment of just how um, absurd and frankly disturbing it might be to some people uh, to hear a, a three-year-old singing about being washed in, in blood. Um, and so, yeah, it occurred to me uh, in that moment that many of us Christians uh, and people who have been sort of grown up singing these songs and hearing these kinds of words and language, um, we actually can easily become kind of desensitized to it all. Um, and we no longer associate uh, the kind of graphic imagery uh, that it would normally call to mind. Um, one, of, one of my favorite hymn writers, uh, William Cowper, um, he wrote an incredible hymn, one that we don't really sing because it is really so graphic in its descriptions. And the first verse goes like this. Is, there was a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And that is, that's a jarring image, right? And that's kind of the point, right? It's meant to be uh, arresting to us. It should be uncomfortable and shocking because uh, it's meant to call to mind the severity of our sin and the heavy, heavy cost of our being reconciled to God. This is a central theme to the gospel. And that's why there are so many songs about it. Um, all right, so my, uh, my hope this morning, um, 
for this sermon is that if you are a Christian and you've been around this uh, type of language and, and Bible teaching uh, for a long time, uh, I hope that you will have sort of a new encounter and a, and a renewed awareness of the, the preciousness of the imagery of the blood of Christ poured out for you. Um, and if you are not a Christian and you're worshiping here with us this morning or you're visiting um, or, or even you're a newer Christian and, uh, you know, perhaps this stuff still all seems very bizarre to you, uh, I hope that I can show you what the Bible teaches about this topic in such a way that it might seem a little less weird to you, uh, potentially even intriguing. Um, so those are our goals. Um, as Sandy read, we are now for the fourth week in a row uh, revisiting Peter's introductory greeting in the first two verses of this letter. Um, and it's just because, though he quickly glosses over a bunch of things here, each of them are deep theological wells. Um, and Pastor Paul has spent the last three weeks unpacking these themes of, of exile and election and Christian identity. Um, and so my, uh, my task here this morning is to address the final portion of this. And uh, as we read this, these introductory verses, um, in a lot of ways, it's a fairly standard introduction as far as apostolic letters go in that it's three parts. It's Peter identifying himself. Uh, he's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he identifies his intended audience um, who are to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. It's a bit of a mouthful. But then the third part of his introduction is the formal greeting, right? Where he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So the question is, what does uh, Peter mean by this? What does Peter mean by grace and peace be yours in abundance? Is this... Uh, is this just something that people in the first century wrote in their letters? Is it just something that people said? Uh, is it just um, one of those customary greetings that nobody thinks about? Um, is it sort of the ancient equivalent of, uh, you know, sending positive vibes? Um, no. The answer is no. This is profoundly theological greeting. Um, here, grace uh, is not... Uh, grace in the generic sense. The grace that's being referred to here is the undeserved favor of God. Right? And more than that, it's the favor that is due only to Jesus directed at us. Right? It's God's delight in us as his chosen family members. Um, it calls to mind for me the, the high priestly blessing number six, um, where the, the priest would pronounce over the people from God, this blessing where he's, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, right? So that's what's being captured here in this grace. And peace, of course, is a update on this uh, ancient Hebrew uh, concept of shalom, right? Which refers to not just any kind of peace, not just the, the absence of conflict, but rather the kind of peace that can only come from living 
in right relationship with the Creator and enjoying all of the attendant uh, benefits and blessings that flow out of that relationship, um, just as Adam and Eve had in the beginning before the fall. Um, and so we need to unpack the implications of this greeting as it pertains both to Peter's original audience and to us. Um, because the reality is that we gloss over these things, right? This is, this is kind of a formulary greeting. All of Paul's letters begin with something very similar. Um, Peter's letters both begin this way. James and John are kind of the exceptions. They just jump into what they're talking about. Um, but the reality is that we read this, this um, grace and peace type blessing at the beginning of most of the, past, uh, most of the New Testament epistles. And so it's easy to kind of just think it's just, a, it's just a customary greeting and you blow past it. But the reality is that this little greeting is the gospel in miniature, right? It's, it's an incredibly packed greeting. The reality, like the, the fact that sinners and rebels like you and I can receive the free gifts of grace and peace in abundance from God, that we can stand in his presence without fear or shame, this is nothing short of a miracle. Because our natural state is one of enmity with God, not peace. Right? Scripture tells us that we are by nature objects of his wrath. But Peter here is suggesting that we are those on whom his favor rests. And so we have to ask, how can this be? How can we be sure that this is true? For Peter to suggest that grace and peace from God are ours in abundance is mind-blowing. And even more incredible is the fact that it costs us nothing. It is freely given. But understand this, just because, uh, just because grace is free to us does not mean that it is cheap. And this is a crucial point of clarification. Uh, the last song we sang before I came up here was the song, Jesus Paid It All. Right? And so the question is, what did Jesus pay? What is it that he paid? Right? We sang, oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Jesus gave his life in exchange for ours. He paid the insurmountable debt that humanity had accrued before God. Modern people uh, do not really like this idea at all. Um, and this goes, this is Christians and non-Christians alike. Um, ancients lived their whole lives, uh, they lived their whole lives worried that they had offended some deity, some unknown deity out there. And so it was really, an, it was not an uncommon uh, idea for them to be the objects of wrath. They walked around kind of expecting to be afflicted or struck dead at any moment. And so they were constantly sacrificing, trying to make uh, appeasements to gods and deities. Um, and so for them, this all would have been a familiar idea in general, but it's radically different in the Christian gospel. But uh, we'll get to that later. But for us modern people in the post-enlightenment world, who no longer believe in pantheons of gods and all these other things, um, we have come to adopt the belief that humans are basically good, right? We, uh, we believe that we're born into the world morally neutral. We talk about babies as being, you know, innocent and all these other things. Um, 
We believe we're blank slates. And frankly, as, as I said, this is not, Christians are not free from versions of this notion. Um, though we would never actually put it this way, I think functionally many of us live as though we believe that we just need Jesus to kind of uh, clean us up a bit. You know, he pays our past debts, but then we got it from here. Right? And, and nothing could be further from the truth. Right? That is, a, that is an extremely cheap version of grace. Um, and so this is because, but this is really possible, right? Because we do not take God at his word, right? We do not take his word seriously. If it's true that contained within the pages of scripture are God's self-revelation, right? That he's revealed himself to us. And in light of that self-revelation, we can have an honest self-assessment. Then we just need to read something like Romans 3 to get a more accurate understanding of who we really are in our own base nature, right? Paul there says in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That is the reality of the human heart apart from Jesus, right? And so the truth is that we have shattered the state of grace and peace that we were created to live in with God by our sin. And our situation is far more dire than most of us believe. Right? The story of Scripture from beginning to end is one overarching and perfectly unified story of redemption. And that redemption begins, that story rather, begins with our desperate need for that redemption. So let's start there. In the beginning, God created a perfect world, right? And he put humans into it, and then he said to them, essentially, all of this is yours to enjoy with one caveat, one exception, right? Genesis 2, 16 and 17, where he says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. God gave people an entire paradise to enjoy with one single restriction. And symbolically, that tree was asking the question, will you trust me to be your God? Right? And when they took from it and ate from it anyway, they were essentially saying, no, we do not trust you. We would rather be our own gods. Okay? And this, this is the heart of sin. This is the root of sin. All sin is against God. And this is why David in Psalm 51, um, which is his psalm of, it's a prayer of repentance uh, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. But it wasn't just Bathsheba that he had wronged. He had also killed her husband. He had made his... his good friends and and military leaders, his most faithful followers, uh, complicit in these crimes. He sinned against the people who he was supposed to lead. Um, He had sinned against a whole whack of people, and yet David says in the psalm, against you and you only have I sinned. And so David is not denying that he sinned against other people. He's simply uh, acknowledging the reality that all sin is first and foremost against God. He's the creator and the king of the universe, And therefore, all offenses against him are capital offenses. They are high treason, 
And the penalty is death. Um, any of you here who are members here at this church, uh, when you became members, you answered a series of questions. The first of which was this. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, without hope save in his sovereign mercy? Justly deserving his displeasure. Why do we insist that our members acknowledge and affirm this? Are we just trying to rub people's faces in their sin to make them feel bad? Right? Absolutely not. Uh, Pastor Paul, he, he mentioned this last week, um, and we mention it often here, and it's our hope that if we repeat it enough, eventually you'll be able to say these things in your sleep. Um, but the reality is that uh, if we only ever say that the gospel is that God loves you, period, then all we will ever accomplish is the fueling of human pride, right? We will naturally come to the conclusion that God loves us because we are lovable. But that's not true. It's true that God loves us, but that's only half of the truth, right? In order for us to be able to actually fully understand and appreciate God's pleasure in us, we have to be reminded that he chose to love us while we were ultimately unlovable. Right? We are worse than we ever imagined we could be, and God knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees the furthest, deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts and our minds, and he knows the true motivations and intentions behind all we do. And his assessment of fallen man, we can read it in, in Genesis 6, he says, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That is a pretty bleak assessment. And yet, it is in spite of this that God chooses to redeem and reconcile people to himself. And that is what makes the gospel good news. This shifts all of the focus off of us and back onto God. Right? We are incapable of earning God's love for himself. We are not lovable. And just look, we'll go back into the story of, of Genesis. Um, if we just look at how Adam and Eve respond after they've sinned, they recognize this. Right? Immediately, uh, immediately they recognize rather that they had irreparably damaged their relationship with God. And we know this because they immediately run to hide from his sight. Uh, if you were anything like me as a child, uh, you can readily think of a time when you broke something valuable uh, or something otherwise precious to your parents. Um, and you know the feeling of dread that immediately washes over you. <laughs> Um, you hear mom or dad coming and you panic and you're trying to hide the evidence you're stuffing things under the couch and um, you're sitting on the couch then pretending to look all casual but you refuse to make eye contact right what's that about right we know we know that the uh, the look of disappointment is going to cut deep right uh, the fear that we have damaged the security of our relationship with our parents is distressing right and so we try to hide from their gaze 
That's what Adam and Eve are doing here in, in the garden. And yet, um, in the case of a child breaking something, it's usually just the result of carelessness and an accident. In the case of Adam and Eve, uh, they, this was high-handed rebellion against God. This wasn't an accident that had happened. This wasn't just carelessness. This was a choice to rebel, right? And um, so they cower and hide knowing that their sin has altered their relationship with God, knowing that they justly deserve his displeasure. But then something amazing happens next. In Genesis 3, we see how God responds to all of this. And he first, after cursing the serpent or the snake, um, before announcing the results of the curse on the man or the woman, he promises that he is going to send someone who is going to make everything right again. This is the first shadow of the gospel being revealed. And so he makes a promise. But then he does something representative of that promise as well. He makes a costly provisional covering for them. Right? He kills one of his own uh, beloved and presumably at this point morally uh, innocent creatures in their place and then clothes them in its skin. He makes garments for them. And they, I mean, you know, they had already made, uh, sewn together fig leaves to make these little things, these little coverings for themselves. But, but the reality is that if you understand how, um, and maybe some of you are in the Forgiveness Book Club with Ryan, uh, by now, you've probably heard or understood that uh, forgiveness is costly, but that cost has to be borne by the one who has been offended, not by the offender, right? And, and so God says, no, look, what, what you need has to come from me. And so he makes them better garments. But, he, but he, they are incredibly costly. It costs a life. Blood has to be shed. And so he provided this substitute. He exchanges their debt for its covering. And this is just the first of many provisions that God is going to make throughout the whole Old Testament, all foreshadowing the ultimate provision that would eventually be given in Christ. Um, spoiler alert, that's where we are headed. Okay, so the payment for sin requires death, either ours or that of a worthy substitute. And blood is symbolic of this sacrifice of a life in payment for sin. That's why we read in Leviticus 17, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And um, Leviticus, basically the book of Leviticus, outlining all of these various ceremonial provisions that God gives to deal with with Israel's sins so that they can live before his face, right? Enjoying grace and peace in his presence. Um, and then we have the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that basically says, look, Jesus is the new and better version of all of that and the fulfillment of it, right? But still there in Hebrews 9, the author says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, so the shedding of blood is absolutely necessary. But the problem is bigger. 
than just this, just the requirement of a, of a payment of debt, right? Let's say that, let's say that Jesus uh, died to pay the debt for your sin, um, and that that brought your your account back up to zero. Now, in that circumstance, God might be uh, legally satisfied, right? The the debt itself may have been paid, the books may be balanced, um, but it does not provide the basis for his favor and delight in you, right? It would be perfectly legitimate for him to be then remain, to remain indifferent to us at that point, right? He, it would be perfectly legitimate for him just to sit back and to wait and to see how we would live. Would we choose right? Would we choose wrong? And then decide if he wants to have a relationship with us, right? However, if we just think for a brief moment about what that would require, since God is moral perfection, he is holy and perfect in all that he is, um, then perfect obedience to God in everything you say, do, and even think, including involuntary and subconscious thought, would be the requirement. God is perfectly holy. And so if we are going to be in restored relationship with him, then we have to be holy as well. Peter reminds his uh, readers of this uh, later in this very chapter uh, in verse 15, where he says, uh, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Can you pull this off? I know I certainly can't. Right? We, we've uh, just finished spending most of a year uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon in which Jesus exposes over and over and over again how none of us are able to keep the law of God perfectly. Right? We might think we're doing okay externally at times, but Jesus goes right to the heart of it, and he says, look, if you even think a nasty thought about someone... That is the heart of murder. And you've already transgressed the law. He says at the end of chapter 5 there, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So our problem is even bigger than the fact that we already owe an infinite debt. It's that even if that debt were paid, we would simply rack it up again and again and again, day after day. Right? We cannot escape it because we cannot escape ourselves the pollution and stain of sin runs so deep. On our own, we are powerless to escape it. There's nothing strong enough to wash it away that we can get for ourselves. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 64. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf in the wind, uh, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. The reality, the truth that Scripture is, is pointing to time and time again is that we don't just simply need someone to pay our debt, as if that isn't a big enough need already. We need someone to live the righteous and holy life that we could never live, and then credit that righteousness to us as though it were our very own. We need to be clothed in the righteousness of a substitute. And so, and, and of course, that substitute has to be a worthy substitute. And if all of us are sinful and none of us seek after God, then who do we look to? 
How do we meet this requirement, right? Who can be this sacrifice, this substitute for us? And so we ask with Isaiah, how then can we be saved? We need God to make a way because there is no way apart from him. Okay, and this, this is all played out dramatically in uh, the Day of Atonement, which is one of these ceremonies outlined in Leviticus that God gave to his people as a means, uh, as a means for them to be able, again, to be in his presence, to live as his people with him dwelling among them. Um, he inducts them into this covenant relationship at Sinai with sacrifices where Moses sprinkles blood on them and he consecrates them by that blood. But then he says, look, the problem of sin is huge. Um, it needs to be dealt with again and again and again in the here and now. None of these things, nothing here, none of these, none of these earthly substitutes are going to be good enough to actually solve the problem for real. But I will give you something provisional in the meantime. And so there's this yearly uh, sacrifice, this ritual, this yearly ritual called the Day of Atonement, on which uh, the high priest, in, in its first iteration, when it's first given, Aaron is the high priest chosen by God, and he's meant to facilitate this. And so it begins with him. You know, he has to bathe himself, and then he puts on all these layers of, of sacred clothing that are only used for this one event once a year, um, and he gets dressed up in all of the, the priestly vestments for it. And then he's supposed to get a, a, cat, a young bull and bring it to the temple. And he slaughters it and collects its blood. And this is, meant, this is simply an atonement for himself. This is so that he can make an atonement for him, himself and the other priests. Where he then has to take that blood, collect it in bowls. He puts incense in a censer and he has to walk in to the Holy of Holies, to this inner sanctuary in the temple where the, the Ark of the Covenant is situated. And it has to be uh, cordoned off by the, in the tabernacle at that time by, uh, by heavy curtains to protect the people from God. There, there was danger of being in the unmediated uh, presence of God. And so even the consecrated priest has to go in there burning incense to fill the place with smoke so that it will, it will act as a screen uh, so that he doesn't look directly on the Ark of the Covenant because it says right in Leviticus uh, 16, it says, the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant of the law so that he will not die. It formed uh, a sort of temporary barrier between Aaron and God so that he wouldn't die. So even Aaron, even this, this chosen, consecrated priest, chosen by God himself, after going through all of the consecrating rituals, still could not look at the ark without dying. That's how dangerous it is for sinners to be in the presence of a holy God. And so, once the incense is burning, fills the Holy of Holies with smoke, Aaron is to take the blood from that bowl that he sacrificed and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, which is on the cover of the ark. And it represents God's throne here on earth among his people. Um, and so he, he spread, sprinkles seven times blood on the mercy seat. Seven, of course, being representative of fullness and completeness. And so he's making a complete atonement. And then uh, he's supposed to go back out. He's supposed to get two pure lambs without spot or blemish, we're told. These are meant to represent uh, an, an innocent, a morally pure substitute, right? And there's two of them. 
They get led into the temple and they cast lots. One of them is to be dedicated to the Lord and the other is to become a scapegoat. So they choose the one that's dedicated to the Lord and he has to put it on the altar and he has to sacrifice it. And this is not like... Most of us, are, we're pretty shielded from this, this type of thing. Like even farmers today are generally not present for the slaughter of their animals. Um, and butchers will tell you they use like these bolts and things like that. But this was like, you, you tie this thing down on an altar and you cut its throat and it bleeds out, gasping for its last breaths. Like it is a violent image and it's an incredibly bloody affair. And so he takes this, this uh, goat and he sacrifices it on the altar and he collects the blood and he brings the blood into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkles it seven times on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. And then he goes back out and you know, he consecrates the altar, he smears blood all over the horns of the altar and things like that. And then, so by this time, you have to imagine, this priest is drenched in blood. Uh, it's a gory, disgusting-looking affair. And he takes the scapegoat and he places his dripping, bloody hands on the scapegoat's head. And this is, this is a pure, spotless uh, goat with no blemish, so it's perfectly white. And now you can imagine, he's smearing blood all over this thing as he confesses the sins of the people. And it represents this transfer of the sin of the people onto this goat. And then they drive it out into the barren wilderness, away from the community, away from the presence of God and the blessings that come from living in God's presence with favor, out into the harsh realities of the wilderness where it will likely get slaughtered by a lion. Right? And, it, and so it carries off the sins of the people out into that desolation. Um, and so the, in this ritual, the two requirements of atonement are fulfilled. We sometimes talk about these with big words, um, one being expiation and the other being propitiation. These are the two requirements. Expiation being the removal of sin, the sin being taken away, and the propitiation being the satisfaction of the moral obligation by the perfect, the, the pure substitute, the innocent life being given for the life of the guilty parties. And in so doing, satisfying God's displeasure with them. Both of these are fulfilled in this ritual. And we, when we read, or when we sing rather, we sang it last week, we sang the hymn Rock of Ages, right? Um, one of the, actually verse 1 of Rock of Ages goes like this. Rock of Ages, cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Right? It's this reference to this, this two sides, these two requirements of atonement. Okay, and through all of this bloody sacrifice and ritual, the people of the Old Testament were justified, not because of the blood of these goats, but because of what they represented. It was their faith in the promise that God was going to send the one who was going to fix all this, all the, all the, the one who all of this pointed to and foreshadowed, right? And so it's their faith in the future promise that they didn't fully understand at all. They were just trusting, hey, God made a promise. This represents it. We trust in that promise. We are atoned for, Right? And so all of these ceremonies are simply a foreshadowing of what was to come. Um, but Peter tells his readers and us 
um, that the real thing, the thing foreshadowed, has come. Right? He says in verse 18 of 1 Peter here, uh, For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And remember, uh, John, when he saw Jesus coming, he made this pronouncement. He said, behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world, right? Jesus became the ultimate scapegoat. Jesus fulfills the rule of the scapegoat and the, the, the goat dedicated to the, to the Lord in this day of atonement sacrifice, right? But as for the, the rule of the scapegoat, he, he was driven from the presence of God, crucified outside the city in the desolation of Golgotha, right? Which, which means place of the skull. Um, and earlier we sang, um, we sang from the song, How Deep the Father's Love, we sang, uh, How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turned his face away. As Jesus died on the cross, we're told that uh, there was an unnatural darkness. The sun was blotted out, right? It became dark in the middle of the afternoon. And there, as Jesus died, he cries out in a loud voice. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? The displeasure, the just displeasure of God that was ours was fixed on him. Jesus Christ offered himself as our substitute. Right, and Peter again, this is again, this is so central to the gospel, but it's also so central to this letter. All throughout this letter, Peter is going to make references to this. In chapter 224, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. And then in chapter 3, he says, For Christ also suffered once for, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And we read from 2 Corinthians 5 earlier, right? This famous passage about reconciliation with God, where it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God for this great exchange, this great provision. But remember, the, the Day of Atonement in, in the Old Testament um, it needed to be observed every year, year after year. We talked, I mentioned earlier, all of these things were, were provisional. They were temporary. They were pointing forward. And so the problem wasn't actually ever fully dealt with. Um, and the benefits need, needed to be re-upped, essentially, every year. But that's not our standing before God these days, right? Like, we don't have to worry that, oh, it's time for us to go go through the rituals again so that we can be safe being in God's presence. Why? Because Jesus is the true and better day of atonement, right? But not only that, he's also the true and better high priest. He doesn't just function in the role of substitute. He functions in the role of high priest who mediates and intercedes on our behalf, who makes the atonement for us. Hebrews 10 says this, day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that is Christ, 
had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The atonement that Jesus made on our behalf is forever. It is complete. It lacks nothing. And as Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. He had fully and finally accomplished that which was promised all the way back in the garden. And at that moment, we're told in the Bible, at that moment, we're told that the, the curtain that separated people from the symbolic presence of God in the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing God's initiation, God's declaration that he is satisfied, that the sacrifice of Christ once and for all covers all sin, that it never needs to be done again. And he welcomes us now into his presence because of that, on the basis of that sacrifice that Christ made in our place. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who have been, as Peter says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. God has accepted the sacrifice. His justice has been fully and finally satisfied. Jesus paid it all. In just a few moments, we're going to sing our final song. We're going to sing from the, the hymn, In Christ Alone. And when we do, I want you to really meditate on the richness of the phrase at the end of verse 2. Uh, that till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I stand, or I live, rather. We are now free to enjoy the unrestricted access to the holy King of Kings. Right? We are now free to glorify and enjoy him forever, as we were created to do without fear, without shame. Right now, Peter can say, and we can truly believe, grace and peace is now ours in abundance on the basis of the sprinkling of the precious blood of Christ, freely given for you and for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the redeeming love you set on us before the foundations of the world were laid. Lord, for all the provision that you've made for us, for the fact that you've made a way where there was no way to reconcile us to yourself, to bring us back into your favor and into your blessing, into right relationship with you. And thank you, Jesus, for offering yourself as a willing substitute 
living the life that we couldn't live and then dying the sinner's death that we should have died. Lord, an eternity of praise. We could never pay you back for what you've done. And this is not what you ask of us. Lord, and so we freely worship you and praise you for all of your goodness and greatness and for the glory of your redemption plan realized in the blood of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.